3: All right, welcome back to Counterpoints. Happy Wednesday. I'm Emily Drasinski, joined by my co-host Ryan Grimm, who is still remote for the time being. Ryan, how are you?
4: I'm doing good. I'll be back. Be back pretty soon. Look, looking forward to seeing you and everybody in the studio. But also been nice to be away. Gotta say.
3: Oh, yeah, I can't imagine. It's a good time to be away from the swamp. That's for sure. Yes. Uh, speaking of uh, all of the all of the craziness in the swamp, we're going to be tackling all kinds of good stuff today. That would be starting with Georgia, the fallout from the latest Trump indictment. We have a lot to break down in terms of how Trump has responded, how his fellow Republican candidates have responded. We're gonna talk about Chris Christie in a recent poll in New Hampshire taking the edge over Ron DeSantis. He's actually leading Ron DeSantis. We're going to talk about that in one poll. The likelihood of a government shutdown uh, increases by the day. We'll probably see some real threats of that going into the fall. Kevin McCarthy has new things to talk about on that. We're going to talk about the uh, cycle of tragedy in Ecuador, which is an important uh, place to look at U.S. policy. It's an important place to look at what's happening uh, in South America, Central America in general. And we're going to be breaking down a little bit of both of our takes on what's happening with the blindside controversy and Michael Orr and uh, the family who who famously took him in, whether or not there's truth to their, their story. We're going to get into all of it. I'm going to be talking about Hillary Clinton weighing in on the Trump indictment in a very giggly interview with Rachel Maddow. Ryan, you're going to be talking about Pakistan again.
4: Yeah, we've got to follow-up on that. Uh, shortly after uh, we broke the news on the show here uh, last week, the State Department was uh, pressed on this secret cable that uh, demonstrated that the U.S. had, in fact, uh, pushed, Im- pushed Imran Khan out of power in Pakistan. Uh, in, a, in a recent interview, the outgoing prime minister has now uh, authenticated the document uh, because there, there were some people who would take a kind of three-step approach. They'd say, uh, this document is inauthentic. Uh, This document was leaked by Imran Khan, and it's a treasonous act. It was not leaked by Imran Khan. Uh, And also, it's a nothing burger. So all three kind of self-contradictory claims would be made at once, and it seems like now they're finally giving up on the the inauthentic uh, claim. And we'll talk about the the completely bizarre uh, State Department uh, response as well. Uh, But speaking of uh, jailing political opponents, uh, we've got uh, number four uh, for... Well, good old former President Donald Trump. Uh, We've got uh, RICO charges. What What do you make of the case that's uh, being laid out?
3: Yeah, the RICO charges is specifically something I wanted to ask you about because you've covered cases like this for a while. And Fannie Willis uh, is a big fan of RICO, has used it in the past. Um, And before we even get into that, I think it's worth mentioning, Donald Trump himself says, uh, we can put A1 up on the screen here. He posted a Truth Social yesterday morning, so Tuesday morning, uh, saying that a large, complex, detailed, but irrefutable report on the presidential election fraud, which took place in Georgia, is almost complete and will be presented by me at a major news conference at 11 a.m. on Monday of next week in Bedminster, New Jersey. Based on the results of this conclusive report, all charges should be dropped against me and others. There will be a complete exoneration. So Donald Trump is having a press conference where he is going to be, according to this true social post, uh, putting on display, demonstrating and and showing evidence for what he says is uh, an irrefutable case that there was fraud in Georgia and all of the charges against him should be dropped. Now, let's put a two up on the screen. There have been some interesting reactions uh, from Donald Trump's fellow candidates. Vivek Ramaswamy said uh, he called this another disastrous Trump indictment. And he also said, as someone who's running for president against Trump, I'd volunteer to write the amicus brief to the court myself. Prosecutors should not be deciding U.S. presidential elections. And if they're so overzealous that they commit constitutional violations, then the cases should be thrown out and they should be held accountable. Ron DeSantis said uh, he's going to end the weaponization of federal agencies like the DOJ and FBI. I think it's an example of this criminalization of politics. I don't think this is something that's good for the country. And then, you know, you have your Asa Hutchinson's and Will Hurd who uh, said things, you know, that this is like Donald Trump demonstrating he's unfit for office, basically what you could expect from those two. I think it's another great example of how Ramaswamy has a better comm strategy as somebody running in the Trump lane uh, or the Trump adjacent lane than Ron DeSantis, who's supposed to be running in like the Trump adjacent lane, the Trump but not Trump lane. Uh, Once again, I think uh, Ramaswamy Swami had a better messaging strategy there than DeSantis himself did. But uh, as for the case itself, Ryan, uh, I, as I read through the 98-page the indictment from Fannie Willis, had a pretty similar reaction to when I read through Jack Smith's indictment, which is that it's very dangerous to say, you know, that people were, and this word comes up over and over again in both indictments, knowingly spreading false information, so this is, I think, the predicate of both cases. And in Jack Smith's case, and a couple of times in Willis's case, she does show that there were people who knew they were spreading false information um, in certain particular instances. But she also, and Jack Smith also, accuses people like Donald Trump um, and Rudy Giuliani of knowingly spreading disinformation, information they were aware was false, uh, in, in times where I don't think they've proved, and I doubt they have the evidence to prove that those people knew it was false. Now, I think it was grossly unethical because I imagine a lot of times they did realize some of this information was at best very, very iffy. Um, But to to charge people for that without evidence, I think is a a pretty terrifying precedent. There are cases where they're citing evidence in both of these indictments. Mm -hmm. And I want to be clear about that. I also think that as a predicate for, you know, going after a political opponent, which is something that we have generally steered away from in this country. People weren't happy when Ford pardoned Nixon. Uh, And, you know, we can go back and think about that. We can think about what Comey did with Hillary Clinton. Um, But we've typically sort of steered away from that in the United States. So if you're going to do it, um, I think it it sets a a precedent that scares me a little bit to say, oh, well, of course they knew it was false without any evidence. And in order to charge them with the conspiracy and in order to charge them with the statutes that uh, Fannie Will. Listing, you do need to prove that they knew it was false. So maybe she can do that. I'm pretty skeptical. What did you make of it, Ryan?
4: I mean, if, if all that they were doing was spreading false information, I would 100% agree with you and say that you, we cannot go down the road of criminalizing lies. Now, you, you you have a First Amendment right as a politician to lie, all politicians lie. Now, you, you don't have the right to do it on YouTube, apparently. You know, they'll, <laughs> take, you, they'll take you down for that. But broadly speaking, under the constitutional umbrella, politicians have the constitutional right to lie their pants off, and they have availed themselves of that right for 200 plus years, and they will continue to do it for as long as this republic exists. But if the lies are linked up with action, and that action is itself illegal, then it does matter. And to to me, the the most blatant kind of illegal acts uh, that are very hard to explain away, and hey, innocent until proven guilty, these 19 guys can... And, and women can go before the jury and try to, uh, you know, explain away what they did. But to me, the hacking, you know, trying to bust into the Georgia uh, voter database, going uh, which they yes. sort of seem to imply they had some access to, legitimately, but it wasn't really legitimate. Like this was not kind of public access that they were exploiting here. And also the go, you know, go and find me eleven thousand votes, and then also uh, creating fake electors. Like if you Create if you make make if you run a fake ID business if if you run if you falsify you know mortgage documents if if you engage in that type of uh, fraud th- those are crimes and so if they can prove that I do think then it it does have to follow that it, it doesn't actually necessarily have to follow that they knew one hundred percent that uh, the uh, election was stolen you know and and what I mean is this like let's pretend that we can get inside of Donald Trump's mind. And he really did 100% believe that he beat Joe Biden in Georgia. He also knows that you have a variety of legal paths that you're able to take in the United States that allow you to challenge what you consider to be an unfair or a rigged election. And that's mostly going through the courts. They went through the courts, they failed. They, they knew that that was the outcome. So even if at the end of all that, they still believe that they were wronged, it kind of doesn't matter what you believe. Like if you believe that you were unfairly convicted of burglary, it doesn't give you the right to break out of prison, even if, even if you authentically believed and were even innocent. And so we have rules, you know, uh, <laughs> this is not Vietnam, as they say. And they didn't follow the rules. They went outside of it and used all of these extrajudicial, extra-legal processes to try to overturn the election. So I think in some ways, you don't even necessarily need to prove that they knew they were lying, although a ton of them knew, like a a whole bunch of them knew. But what they absolutely knew is that the election had been certified and he lost by 11,000 votes. They knew that, Raffenberger told him that, the news reported it, everybody knew that. He disagreed with it, Right. but whether or not that was an authentic disagreement or not, in some places beside the point.
3: That's that's what I, I find frustrating though, is that jump from it's likely that, you know, so if, if Raffensperger is telling Donald Trump, you don't have the votes, uh, it's, it's a pretty good piece of evidence that, frankly, you don't have the votes. This is a Republican talking to a Republican, and in all likelihood, you don't have the votes. And that goes to Rusty Bowers as well from Arizona, who is telling Donald Trump similar things. But Jack Smith and Fannie Willis say, well, because... <laughs> Brad Raffensperger and Rusty Bowers had told Donald Trump and his legal team uh, what they thought about the vote totals, he knew. And then everything he said differently from that was knowingly spreading false information because somebody had told them that. But the fact is, and as these indictments show, he has legal experts telling him different things. And to your point, Ryan, um, it's one of those, it's like, well, what do, we, what do we know about what Donald Trump actually believed? And that's where legally it gets in a different territory for me. It just becomes, um, it, it becomes really difficult to, uh, be, it becomes very difficult, to, uh, the legal precedent for me becomes very difficult.
4: Yeah, and if we can put up this next axios element we're looking at a wild uh, 2024 because you have all of these different court cases starting to line up with you know, Iowa, New Hampshire, Super Tuesday, the Democratic, uh, no, sorry, the Republican National Convention. And you're going to have them kind of weaving it in and out of the political cycle in, in a way uh, that's going to kind of never take this off the kind of news map for more than, say, a week. You're always going to have some type of Motion or decision coming down in one of these different cases, and so Emily. On the one hand, I feel like this helps Trump in the sense that it rallies Republicans around him. Also, feel like it doesn't necessarily help him with a general elect- electorate, which he you know, cont- where he continues to erode support. So, I'm wondering what your sense is of the of the politics. We've never come close to having a presidential election unfold and anything remotely like this.
3: No. And again, to the the last point that we were uh, debating a little bit, it's part of what makes me wish that this were happening at the ballot box. And I come from the perspective that like I wish we locked every politician up who did something bad, but the fact of the matter is we don't. And so when you have the public watching something like this play out, I think it creates a lot more rancor. We're going to be talking about this in the Hillary Clinton block coming up in a little bit, and we can probably go back and forth on it more then. But uh, when you look at this calendar, and you look at what's happened since, Uh, the first indictment came down in April, Donald Trump's numbers and the gap between him and any other candidate has gone up. So it helps Trump in the primary, might not help him in the general, but the reason it helps him in the primary is that I think it's for the same reason it helps whatever candidate, likely Joe Biden, is matched up with Donald Trump. This is the type of thing that energizes both bases. And then you have this middle of the country that's just like, well, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? I, I think Donald Trump is nuts and uh, I think he has done all kinds of extra legal things. On the other hand, I'm looking. Joe Biden, who's got uh, all kinds of issues of his own, uh, whether that's you know cognitive problems, whether that's Hunter Biden problems, uh, whether that's the economy, frankly. And so I just, I mean, it makes me, it it pains me for the country, uh, thinking of looking at that Axios chart, looking at the calendar going forward. Which, if you're listening to this, if you if you find that Axios timeline, it might be worth looking up because it's incredible to look at how many court dates um, and and how on earth even one person could balance a presidential campaign with these four indictments um, in all of these different jurisdictions over the next year or so, it is gonna be I like, buckle up because we're in for a pretty wild ride.
4: Uh, plus a golf schedule that he's gotta work in there too. But the irony here, and I'm curious for your take on this, if he had done what every other president you know, ever throughout American history had done, uh, which is to concede to the person who won, to say, you know what, Sleepy mm-hmm. Joe got the best of me, I'll be back in four years. I feel like he would be the odds-on favorite, not just to win the Republican nomination, that was his with the taking, but to win the White House again. I feel like he'd be, that Bi- the Democrats would be running scared that Biden would be you know, at least several points behind him. Instead, the guy's looking at various prison terms and it, and it's also hurting him with the general electorate. Do you, Where do you think he would be if he would have just said, you know what, he got me.
3: hmm No, I agree with that. I agree with that. Two things. One, I agree. If if he had done that with the presidential election, he would be in a much more strong political position. And if he had, you know, taken COVID more seriously all the way through, I think he would be in a stronger political position. And that's not to say I'm I'm not trying to get into lockdowns or masking or anything, but just it devolved into something uh, because in some sense he was being attacked as being you know X, Y, and Z, and he lashed out and responded in ways that I think you know made it more difficult for the country to approach the serious crisis that was killing lots and lots of people. And so the problem is you just can't separate that from the Mm -hmm. things that make Trump politically successful. Um, You know, the the things that make him successful are also his his downfall. It's like a Greek tragedy that plays out every single day on True Social now. Uh, And so you can't really have I I just didn't see how you can have the one part of Trump without the other part of Trump, which is where again, like a problem with both of these indictments, Smith and Willis, uh, legally and I think just as like a strategy as well, is that it's saying that Donald Trump um, was acting. I I think they're they're taking him as a rational actor who, you know, when the Secretary (laughs) of State, who is a Republican, tells you something, you are like, oh, that is a very good piece of evidence uh, that I lost the election. Whereas with Donald Trump, you see over. and over again. And people I've talked to say if he believes anything, it's that he won that presidential election because he had Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani and their people chirping in his ear um, saying stuff and that's who he chose to believe. He's, He's like a you know he's a he's a Twitter boomer. Uh, he was a Twitter boomer, uh, and, and so the I, I, the other thing I wanted to say, Ryan, is I agree with you completely on that uh, Sidney Powell part about the Georgia voting machine. That is that's in the Fannie Willis indictment, and that is extremely. Uh, dicey material. That looks like it could be a real problem for her. Uh, Whether they uh, got access to just like a password and it gave them access to the voting thing, uh, that might be the case, but they knew that they weren't supposed to have it. It sounds to me from the evidence, and we'll see what evidence is presented in court, but it it sure looked like they knew they weren't supposed to be uh, entering the voter database from the back end there. Uh, And so I think that is a, a pretty serious part of the indictment too.
4: Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's not technically, I guess, classified information, but it's the same thing. One of the things that they're charging Julian Assange for is, mm-hmm. is for helping uh, mm-hmm. Chelsea Manning kind of cover her tracks uh, in in what, when she was uh, looking through you know, Pentagon files to to leak uh, to WikiLeaks. And so, uh, you know, if for everybody who talks about you know two different tiers of justice, we have to we have to remember that too. That anybody who tries to kind of penetrate an election system without uh, legal access to it. Is, is committing a crime. Like mm-hmm. that's pre- pretty straightforward.
3: Yeah, we can't have people. There's a great episode of Reno 911 where they try to go in and change votes on a referendum for police <laughs> pay.
4: Yeah. Um,
3: there's a reason we you have. Can't to, have like, that. Yeah. You can't have that.
4: <laughs> I oh, don't all have right. a country here.
3: Right, uh, but just briefly, I want to dive into Fannie Willis because she's obviously front and center, as people have said, with the, one of the most serious cases, probably the single most serious case against Donald Trump, because uh, it does not involve a presidential pardon. It's a state; it's a series of state charges, and he can't. It can't be waived away by a Republican president or a kind-hearted Democratic president. Uh, there's nothing that a president can do to save Donald Trump from these charges, and obviously they're serious in nature. Um, so that Fannie Willis is if we put the next element up on the screen, A4, she has been, uh, the the right is exploring Fannie Willis's history as, you know, it's it's sort of natural in a situation like this. But one thing that's come up, you see, this is from Newsmax. They say she's an activist Democrat and her father was a member of the Black Panthers, which they described there, Ryan, as you'll enjoy in parentheses, Marxist-Leninist Black Power
4: Group. No Um, no lies detected.
3: There you go. And so uh, Fannie Willis has sort of come under the microscope, And The Telegraph did a pretty interesting deep dive on her, and I I found interesting one quote they have here from a Georgia State University law professor who said she's really a tough-on-crime liberal, which is kind of a rare bird these days, but I think that's her brand. The Telegraph also notes, by her own admission, Miss Willis is a fan of RICO. <laughs> She's previously used Georgia's expansive racketeering charges to prosecute cheating teachers. That's a case that actually got some national headlines at the time. She won eleven convictions and national media attention in relation to the public school test score scandal, as uh, as the Telegraph notes. There, uh, I think she also had RICO charges against Young Thug, and she she won. She pursued those charges, and I think she won in court. Uh, now. Devin Franklin, uh, an attorney for the Southern Center for Human Rights, who spent 12 years in the Fulton County Public Defender's Office, said that using these laws drives, quote, a narrative of violence in Atlanta that's not true, that's not necessarily reflected in the data, and has a tendency to sensationalize the cases. She's spent actually most of her career as an assistant DA down in Fulton County. Uh, That's, as people know, outside of Atlanta, it's the most populous county in Georgia, so obviously a hugely important political center of the state. uh, she bought she beat a primary fight against her mentor, Paul Howard, who had been Georgia's first black district attorney. Uh, and so she comes, takes out her mentor um, and she says she was uh, she actually said her father was a former Black Panther. That comes from her. That's not like some weird digging. Um, but the I think that's when you have Newsmax calling her an activist Democrat and then the Telegraph saying she's actually a tough on crime liberal prosecutor. Those are obviously in tension um, right now. If you're an activist, Democrat, prosecutor, a lot of people think of you along the lines of like a Chesa Boudin or a uh, Gascon, uh, but that doesn't right. seem to be the case with Fannie Willis, who's like, hey, Rico, let's, let's just have a Rico party. Um, and <laughs> these yeah. things seem to be in tension. So the, the, the picture of Fannie Willis, to me at least, um, as somebody who's not you know a, in Georgia following politics for the last couple of decades, that's sort of a, a muddied picture
4: they're using activist in a very liberal sense there because if she were a, an activist kind of part, straight up partisan democrat uh, she wouldn't have gone after the teachers union uh like like she did that was a really brutal case uh came came after you know several schools uh that were that she accused of rigging basically rigging their test scores i think they were cutting into the packets and like it it, it was a mess and a really sad case and it and it uh, it really shined a light on, you know, how far adrift a lot of uh, public schools had gone in Fulton County. And if she were just a straight up kind of partisan uh, Democrat, she would never have taken on uh, that that kind of case. And she and certainly wouldn't have done it with the zeal- zealousness to bring in Rico, which then allows, to to the point of some of her critics, allows you to cr- to criminalize some things because they're part of the criminal conspiracy that otherwise wouldn't be criminal acts on on their own. Uh, and so uh she but you know she's she's good at what she does like the, she's got the, she's got the record to show it. Uh and you know good for her dad not you know Black Black Panther uh you know the the Black Panther party uh for self defense had you know went in some crazy directions towards the very end uh, but you know throughout much of its uh history uh was you know a real a real force for good and, and empowerment uh and and particularly kind of stitching together civil society elements in the black community in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh so uh yes but you know you come after the former president you're going to certainly you know get the uh, the get the spotlight from out, you know not just outlets like newsmax but everybody. So you know I understand where that's coming from.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Although I think any efforts to sort of turn her into one of the like a Chesa Boudin, uh, no, that's yes, probably not, not going to yeah. be successful. <laughs> um, yeah. And it, it, Ryan, just before we move to the, the next topic, I just wanted to mention again that she has a critic in that Telegraph article, which is a really good deep dive, actually, saying that she has a tendency to sensationalize uh, cases and that is definitely, if you, if you want to spend uh, 98 pages going through the indictment, um, I definitely felt like that was a, a word that would accurately characterize the indictment itself. But I wanted to ask you, Ryan, about Rico, just sort of in general, uh, as someone who's covered Rico for a while, what it means that she's invoking it here, um, given the history of Rico and mob stuff, uh, et cetera, et cetera.
4: Plenty of people have already pointed out the irony that Rudy Giuliani is getting slapped yes. with RICO because you know he very much you know rose to prominence using RICO cases uh, against, in particular, the mob in New York. And you know if you're go- if you're going to have a-, a government, you're going to have a democratic republic where you know power is vested in the people that are elected by the populace. Then you can't have mafias you can't have criminal conspiracies kind of uh running around outside the law and and getting around the law by saying that okay well you don't have you know you you don't have anything on us you know yes it is clear that we are uh running drugs uh running illegal casinos uh you know running sex trafficking and human trafficking operations trying to overthrow an election you know but you actually haven't you don't have anything specific on us that can uh, that can you know, pin a serious crime with this. And so you end up just slapping a whole bunch of misdemeanors together, even though you can prove that it was all collectively oriented toward this grand kind of collective conspiracy. So uh, to the to the extent that you can bring those laws to bear on you know pri- you know entities that are be- trying to become private governments, and that's that's the interesting kind of link between a a private gang of people that is trying to you know overturn an election. And a private gang of people that doesn't bother with elections and just kind of takes over a community by force, uh, that's basically the same thing. And that's what a democratic society can have. Like we, we have established ways that you, you know, are, are able to get into government and we don't have mafias. Like, I mean, we do, but we <laughs> And so the, you know, RICO is aimed at making sure that the people have control over their own sovereignty. So uh, to me, um, you know, they they can absolutely be abused in a, in a, uh, a lot of different ways, and we need to be uh, on guard for that. But in general, I think it's a necessary part of, uh, you know, the people exercising their own sovereignty.
3: That's why Ryan voted for Giuliani in the Republican primary in two thousand and eight.
4: <laughs> America, America's <laughs> mayor. <laughs>
3: All right, well, let's move on to Chris Christie in a new Emerson poll out of New Hampshire taking the edge over Ron DeSantis. Check this story out. We can put the first element up on the screen. I'm reading from The Hill here. Former New, Go- new Jersey Governor Chris Christie has surpassed Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in the critical early presidential primary state of New Hampshire, according to an Emerson College survey released Tuesday. Christie leapfrogged DeSantis for second place in the Granite State, garnering nine percent support. DeSantis' support, on the other hand, fell to eight percent from 17 percent in March so check that out that is a nine point decline for DeSantis Christie's one point lead over DeSantis but this is actually a good point and I'm glad that he'll put this because you don't always see this in news coverage that is within the polls plus or minus minus 3.4 percent margin of error well within the margin of error there which is pretty important what is still outside of the margin for error from the margin of error is that big decline for DeSantis there's you cannot uh you know match away that giant decline um, in the same poll of uh, New Hampshire voters from 17 to 9. Uh, that's really, really brutal. Now, according to that poll, Trump still dominates the GOP primary field, as the Hill puts it, with 49 percent support. You then have Tim Scott at 6 percent, Doug Burgum and Nikki Haley at 4 percent, Ramaswamy um, and Perry Johnson at 3 percent and two perspective. Re- re- Respectively, and then Mike Pence and Will Hurd, each at one percent support. Now we have also 13 percent of voters saying they are undecided, which is a good chunk, but not enough to make up that massive margin between Trump and everyone else. What did you make of that, Ryan? Well,
4: I heard you mentioning Will Hurd earlier in the program. I was thinking, yeah. hey, Will Hurd's running for president. Yeah. Uh, he, he has not landed with much of a uh, of a splash so far. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it, just an inc- incredible. Uh, you're, the spin you're seeing from the Desantis camp is that they really feel like they have you know, a clean shot at Iowa. You know that if they can, if they and if they can propel themselves out of Iowa with with a victory, then that can you know, reshape their momentum. Which which is true. Like if you could do that, it does do that. Uh, but he's got such a uh, a hill to climb, and he's facing such significant headwinds. What are they basing this claim on besides just kind of, oh, uh, that Iowa could have, you know, is, is a better place for them than basically everywhere else where he's, you know, you know, getting biffed?
3: It's a place where you can, yeah, I mean, I I think their theory is that it's a place where you can pour resources into. And if you do the ground game right, then it's the momentum that will translate to the other states and sort of trickle down campaigning. And uh, the example is that they go off of, uh, their consultant is Jeff Rowe, who did this with Ted Cruz in Iowa uh, back in 2016. Cruz wins Iowa, comes out of that with a lot of momentum. And I just, uh, again, look at that and shake my head. And like from, uh, maybe it's it's easier to see the forest from the trees when uh, you're not like, when you're a journalist and you're looking at this from the outside, but Ted Cruz lost. <laughs> Great. I'm glad Ted Cruz had a lot of momentum. Um, And Ted Cruz barely beat Beto O'Rourke with the same consultant in Texas. Uh, And so I I just don't it doesn't inspire. If I were a DeSantis donor, it wouldn't inspire a lot of confidence uh, that that was the strategy, especially since it's still uh, when you're when you're looking overall at voters. It's it's such a huge margin. I would understand that if it was a much slimmer margin. But given that it's such a huge margin, I find that completely um, not not persuasive. Let's show Chris Christie. Um, he's he's got to be feeling good right now because again, when you're looking at Chris Christie and when he entered the race, it was sort of like, okay, great. Like Chris Christie's not going to win. Well, if he's taking nine percent support. Away from all of the other candidates. I mean, maybe that's why you have Mike Pence in New Hampshire at one percent, because you have Chris Christie taking nine percent of the vote. And when you have everyone else uh, sharing, you know, Trump's at forty-nine percent, and his next opponent is forty points behind at nine percent. When you have somebody like Christie uh, eating into the vote, then that's a big. I mean, that's a big chunk that would be spread out from other candidates. It's certainly not a, enough to make anything up. But when you're trying to get uh, financial support, when you're trying to get momentum, media attention, et cetera, et cetera. Christy's taking some of that up. So let's see how, how Christy was talking to a voter in Iowa just this week.
1: And I didn't do everything that in my mind and my heart I wanted to do because I was making a political calculation when you were just suggesting, well, if these people are so entrenched with them and they're gonna go to hell and back with them and you maybe need them to vote for you at some point, maybe you should just back off a little bit. Let me tell you, I tried it, it doesn't work. And when he says the stuff he said about me yesterday, Don't want to bother you for a minute. I don't care.
3: (laughs) Okay, Ryan, that's a good flavor of how Christie is approaching the Trump issue with voters. Uh, Is is that how he's getting to 9%?
4: I guess it's just such an interesting way to speak. I tried it and it didn't work. It's not, he's not saying it was wrong. You know, I went against my moral principles (laughs) and I realized that what I was doing was compromised. And so I, you know, Damn it. I'm just going to speak truth and let the chips fall. They were. He's just laying it out in a purely pragmatic way. Just like like, I was a piece of garbage. Yeah, (laughs) I tried appeasing him uh, because I thought it would benefit me politically and it didn't. Uh, It it hurt me. And so I'm going to now take a different approach to try to benefit myself politically. That's such a fascinating attempt to speak truth (laughs) because I do believe him. Like I actually think he is telling the truth but it's not a very kind of attractive or appealing truth about what it says about what's underneath there. Because what he's saying, not even implicitly, but explicitly, is that if appeasing Trump had benefited him politically, in other words, if he hadn't prosecuted Jared Kushner's father and created a lifelong enemy in Jared Kushner, then he would continue to violate his principles and appease Trump (laughs) as long as it, you know, benefited Christie politically. And so I get it. That's true. That's that's how he feels. Uh, but I don't quite. Get, I mean, I get it. I, I guess it sounds the way he says it. It sounds like he's being honest with people. But what he's saying to people is that I tried lying to you, and it didn't work for me. So now I'm going to try something different, and we'll see if that works.
3: Right. So yeah. That's exactly I, I what he's you know. doing.
4: No, that's, <laughs> that's a great way
3: to put it. He's like, I was lying to you then, but believe me, I wouldn't do that now. I've learned that that. it didn't work. Bad. Right. Right. But if
4: it worked, I would do it. Like, that's the other thing he's saying. Yeah. Right.
3: Yeah. That's exactly what he's saying. And again, I think because I was actually thinking about this this morning. I was like, Christie's a really shrewd politician, like what he did in New Jersey. um, He like on a political level, he had some strategic uh, innovations and successes that I think are worth noting just from a political point of view uh, that doesn't of course translate into like being a moral stalwart, but uh, he, he at least like kind of understands the game. And I wonder if he sees Donald Trump uh, being one of the few people in American politics who has sort of leveled with voters, um, at least purportedly or, or is ostensibly leveled with voters and said, listen, I know the system because I've been a part of the system. Mm-hmm. and Let me tell you, it's bad. I wonder if Christie sees that from Trump, sees that it's been successful with voters and thinks that he can do it. I still don't think, Chris Christie thinks he's going to win the Republican primary. I think he's having a lot of fun, sort of blowing it up, uh, blowing up Donald Trump. If you know, yeah, I think it feels like cathartic for him to be out there just trashing Trump with people who might otherwise support him. And I think it's kind of fun for him too to muck it up for Ron DeSantis and everyone else. Which, by the way, um, could be. Uh, that could be something that actually just ends up handing the nomination to Donald Trump, and I don't know that Chris Christie genuinely cares that it goes to Donald right. Trump because if this is, if this is Chris Christie's pitch to voters, if anything. It's interesting that he's at nine and Mike Pence in this poll is at like, what, one percent? Because Mike Pence has the strongest argument uh, that he stood up to Donald Trump on a moral level on January 6th. I mean, that is like Mike Pence's bread and butter that he's leaned into. Um, And that's his pitch. Is that like, listen, at a certain point, I had to say no. So that Chris Christie is more successfully making that pitch in New Hampshire. Not entirely surprising because he's not an evangelical conservative and uh, he's more of like a Northeastern and, you know, sort of maverick Republican than Mike Pence's. But it's still pretty interesting that, like, that's Pence's thing. And Christie is uh, getting into that lane.
4: Yeah, you make an interesting point that, you know, Trump has been successful by being kind of a flagrant and craven and completely open narcissist. That the politics of just pure self-interest and expressing your pure self-interest has an authenticity to it that resonated with people. Whether that's just Trump or whether that can be kind of broadened out to other people like Christie, uh, is an interesting question. So maybe Christie is seeing that that like, look, Trump was just completely open about his cravenness, and people liked it. People felt <laughs> like it was raw, that it was that he's just being straight with them. And so maybe Christie's yeah trying to trying to follow in in, in that path.
3: Before we run, I want to put B3 up on the screen. I think this is one of the more interesting takeaways from that Emerson poll. Uh, you see the most important issue that New Hampshire voters say is on their mind is the economy. So 32 percent said economy, jobs, inflation and taxing taxes. 21 percent, mm-hmm. in a very similar vein, said housing affordability. said threats to democracy, then you get to healthcare, abortion access, education, immigration, crime, something else, each between eight and 5%. Uh, But if you're looking at the two biggest ones, so more than 50% of voters in New Hampshire say that their top issue is the economy or, or housing. And I think of those in the, pretty much in the same mm-hmm. vein uh, because obviously one affects the other. That I, I don't know what answer Republicans have. I never hear Republicans talking about the issue of housing affordability ever. I mean, that is just not something there are two things that voters care about a lot that uh, Republicans never talk about and it's housing and health care. Uh, it's not just that they don't seem to have a policy answer, it's that they aren't even talking about it. And, you know, I think Democrats have their own issues that they don't talk about as well. But for Republicans, looking at that, looking at how important housing is, they need it. <laughs> if they, if right. they want to have success in a general election, not just a primary, they need an answer to that.
4: Yeah, right. Democrats at least occasionally talk about it. Uh, right. they, they, had a, they had a gigantic uh, housing affordability uh, piece of Build Back Better, which was in in the in the range of several hundred billion dollars, which would have been you know genuinely important from a, a policy uh, level on a policy level, it immediately got dropped uh, when when Manchin said he's only doing you know x uh, on on the bottom line. So at least they talk about it. Uh, but you're but you're right. It is to have one in five New Hampshire voters saying that that's their top issue, and to basically have no national conversation about any type of kind of federal, uh, legislation or federal approach to it is rather striking because housing is becoming the the real kind of dividing uh, question, uh, between the haves and the have nots. And it is, it is becoming the thing that is just, you know, making people feel so bleak about their, about their future, because even as you know, consumer prices start to level out, you know, if you're still, if you're still paying jacked up rents for over from the last couple of years, you know, you're, that means you're still falling behind relative to a couple, couple years ago, even as your wages are going up. Uh, so, yeah, it, huge, huge problem for for both parties. But you're right; Republicans are just completely nowhere on that on that question. And it's interesting in, that it's in New Hampshire. You know, not it's not a state you typically associate with kind of out of control rents.
0: Yeah, but that's you know, a really good point. All
4: Mass Massachusetts people, I guess, flooding in there, probably driving <laughs> up and New Yorkers and others just kind of probably driving up home prices. Yeah, not, no, it's not, it's not like they're building a lot.
3: And I'll just also mention before we wrap that last week we were talking about credit card delinquencies starting to spike. You're seeing the same thing with uh, auto loan delinquencies. You're not seeing the same thing with with mortgage delinquencies, but uh, the economy is on shaky ground right now. And that's actually a a good transition into our next topic, which is that Kevin McCarthy this week on a conference call with Republicans uh, said actually that he might go with a short-term solution of funding the government uh, in the fall. So meaning he would be potentially supportive of a continuing resolution in September that kind of kicks the can into December when it comes to funding the government. All this is to say that the threat of a government shutdown is very real going into the fall. Uh, So real that Republicans are obviously already starting to talk like this. So let's run um, a A clip here from Jeff Jackson, Democrat from North Carolina, who Ryan and I once misidentified as a Republican for like an entire segment. I think our brains were broken that day. Um, But uh, let's let's roll. Jeff Jackson, Democrat from North Carolina, (laughs) weighing in on the potentiality of a of a shutdown here.
1: This man just came up to me at the airport and goes, "Hey, are you Jack Jefferson?" I said, "That's pretty close. Sure." He said, "I got a question for you. Do you think we're going to have a government shutdown this year?" And I said, "Probably yes." He asked why, and here's what I told him. The budget for the federal government runs out on the last day of September. Passing a new budget is actually passing 12 separate bills, and in the House, we've passed one. The other 11 bills haven't even come to a vote, but that's not because of Republicans versus Democrats. It's because there's an internal fight within the majority party about spending, but also whether to add a bunch of cultural issues like new restrictions on abortion, which is the official story. But here's what's really happening. This isn't about the budget. In the House, you've got a group of folks in the right flank who want to shut down the government. So they're asking for things they know everyone else in their party will say no to.
3: Ah, Okay, so I think that's half right. (laughs) I think he's right about the internal dynamics. But I also, when you talk to people on the Hill in the sort of Freedom Caucus arena, it's not that they want to shut down the government. like They just love the idea of shutting down the government. Republicans know politically they always get blamed for that. It is rarely good, even if you're in a red district, it's rarely good for you to shut down the government. That said, they're also facing an immense amount of pressure from their base. And they look at, again, this is their perspective, um, what's happening in the country and say, we need to use our power if if we have a, a majority in the house and we don't push as hard as we possibly can by driving a taking a really hard line on uh, defunding X, Y, and Z, defunding DEI, CRT, whatever it is, uh, then we're not using our power at all. If we're not, if we're not negotiating for the sake of just going along to get along, uh, then we're not going to get any wins. And we saw them uh, find success with this in the speaker battle. They they squeezed a whole lot of wins out of Kevin McCarthy. Uh, they felt like they were sort of stabbed in the back a little bit by McCarthy uh, in the the uh, bill that was passed in the spring. Um, that they felt, you know, they, they, the funding bill from the spring, they felt not great about what happened with that. Uh, they, they thought that they could have kept pushing. But even then, they still got uh, some successes. They still squeezed some wins out of McCarthy and Republican leadership in that case. Axios had the story from the Republican conference call, we can put C2 up on the screen, um, about what McCarthy said himself. He, he's saying that, um, according to Axios, he wouldn't do a CR Past early December. So that is according to four sources on the call. So that CR would, uh, if, if, if you have the government deadline as September 30th for funding, um, he wouldn't pass a continuing resolution that would fund it after early December. So that's kicking the can for like a few months. Uh, Ralph Norman, Republican from North Carolina, said right now I would say no about uh, the the CR. He would say it's He's absolutely willing to force a government shutdown. Um, and then Bob Good of Virginia said, "If we have a temporary shutdown of the government, what's the risk or concern about that happening? We shouldn't implement bad policy to avoid that." And that's what Jeff Jackson is talking about, Ryan. Right? Is is that attitude of saying like, "Well, hey, cost benefit here. Um, it's, it's you know, at a certain we can push far enough that it won't hurt us." Basically.
4: Government shutdowns are sort of becoming a, an anger release valve for yeah. factions within the government. You know, they're they're elected, they have, you know, significant bases of power, but they don't have a majority. Uh, they don't have, a you know, the Freedom Caucus obviously doesn't even remotely have a majority in the House of Representatives. Uh, Democrats control the House, Democrats control the White House, but they have angry constituents who, you know, want them to post some Ws. And so the only thing that's kind of left, well, only two things that are left are uh, some wins on, around the rules package. Set that aside, you know, they, got, they got some of those, they caused like a four-day four day fight. Uh, but then after that, uh, you can default on the government debt or you can shut the government down. You can't really default on the government debt as we learned in the last fight because nobody has the stomach for it. Because the, the big money people and the small uh, folks your, your car dealers everybody in the district is calling you and like look do not default on the government like do not seize up the global financial system like it's not it's not worth it for for what and so they they caved on that and i i thought that they would fight a little bit longer frankly than they did on that but it it became so clear that the risk was so great and the the chance of them winning whatever they hoped they were going to win was so little that they kind of you know, folded and, and moved on, and Biden kind of did outmaneuver them. And so now that leaves them with a government shutdown. And so to me, it's almost as if they have to shut the government down just to save face.
2: Hmm. Uh,
4: and I think McCarthy has to punt to December because right now it's just too embarrassing. Like they said, we're going to pass all 12 of our appropriations bills. And as Jackson said, they've only done one so far. And so when you, when the government is shutting down because you haven't done your homework or what it looks like you haven't done your homework, then it's even more humiliating for you because then it's you know political and ideological and also a competence problem because then all Democrats have to say is like you didn't even, you didn't even pass anything yet, so at least pushing to, to December you know, theoretically gives them the possibility to actually get these uh, these appropriations bills together. Whether they can do that or not is is not obvious. Like this is this is harder stuff than you would think. Ironically, because it 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 shouldn't be hard because it's not going to become law. Like they're just writing bills that are messaging documents. Like there's no there's no world in which Joe Biden is signing off on whatever, just straight up whatever House Republicans come up with. There's no world in which it gets through the Senate. Right. So it, it really doesn't matter to anybody's actual daily lives what's in the bill, yet it's still very hard to get 218 votes on 12 different uh, uh, appropriations bills. So I think they're hoping like we can punt this till December and then we'll have our our work done, then we'll have a shutdown. Uh, Freedom Caucus can, do, you know, do what Jackson was saying. They can get a lot of interviews. Uh, they can show that they did everything they could, but at some point they're going to have to, you know, bow to the reality that they don't control the House, uh, and they, even if they kind of control the fate of the Speaker, and they don't control the Senate, they don't control the White House, and so that's where I. Th- so I think we'll get, who knows, a couple weeks of a shutdown, maybe longer. Uh, what's what's your guess as to how this unfolds?
3: Well, that's the thing, right. So finding agreement for these th- for these appropriations bills. So I think they have like 11 appropriation bills. They passed one of a dozen of them, and they're in session. They, they come back September 12th, so it's recess month. And uh, that's why here in D.C. things are pretty dead and always are in August. They're in session 12 days. That's like one appropriations bill a day. It's not (laughs) impossible, but if you don't agree on which ones to pass, that means you have to do a lot of negotiating uh, between now and then and in those just 12 days that you're in session. So it makes sense from McCarthy's perspective to do a a short – term like stopgap measure for the next couple months, figure out what uh, they're going to agree on or disagree on when it comes to funding. Everyone sort of find their place, uh, which buttons that they're actually going to push in this uh, theater, because again, Republicans know they don't control the Senate or the White House, but to your point, Ryan, the question is whether they control the speaker and uh, they they have shown that it's not they, so much they control the speaker and it's not that the speaker controls them. It's that they've actually had this relationship where it's a push and pull that can explode in any, either of their faces, more in McCarthy's face at any given moment, which is why he's negotiated with them, I think, so uh, he understands how fragile the relationship is, and that can blow up at any moment. So it does make sense to sort of find consensus on the appropriation bills and then get to uh, long-term government funding. We have a couple more reactions from The Hill. We can put C3 up on the screen. Uh, this is Tony Gonzalez uh, on, with his read of the situation. I just got off a member call. It's clear President Biden and Speaker McCarthy want a government shutdown. So that's what Congress will do after we turn after we return in September. This is a member of Congress saying, quote, plan accordingly, uh, because he expects, frankly, the government to shut down based on all of these conversations, internal conversations that have been happening, that both Biden and McCarthy see a shutdown as something that is, uh, in some sense, politically helpful. I don't think that's the case with Kevin McCarthy. I do think it's the case with President Biden. Uh, Democrats, again, know that if the government shuts down, they have one huge advantage, and that is the media, which will generally take their side. And, and sometimes that's fair. Sometimes Republicans do want a government shutdown. And it makes sense for the media to blame Republicans, because Republicans are saying, yes, blame us. <laughs> uh, but in some cases, that's that's not exactly how it works out. We can put C4 up on the screen. This is more from the Senate side. Um, this is Schumer, in a press call, said he spoke with McCarthy at the end of July on need for CR. Quote, I thought it was a good thing that he recognized that we need a CR. I'm supportive of that. Uh, And then Schumer says, I was glad that Speaker McCarthy had mentioned publicly the need for CR. If we do this in a bipartisan way, I'm confident we can avoid a government shutdown if the House Republicans and the Freedom Caucus insists on doing this partisan so extreme and gets no Democratic votes. They're heading us towards a shutdown. That's from reporter Mika Solner. So Ryan, what do you make of Schumer's comments there?
4: Right, and the the problem Schumer, Schumer, you know, wants to make sure that Republicans get the blame for any uh, shutdown. So he's going to say, "Look, yeah, whatever you guys, if you guys can figure something out, we're we're here, we're here for you. We'll do a CR." And I think we spend a lot of time, you know, talking about the Freedom Caucus, but just as important are the you know what quote unquote moderate members of of the Republican Conference, which are Tuesday group. You know, think of yeah, like a Gonzales and people who. One districts that Biden either carried or or that Biden was very close to. Uh, the, and those are districts that are becoming even tougher uh, for Republicans because of you know the, the activism around you know codifying roe v wages, so you're going to have you know huge turnout in those kind of centri- in those swing districts. And so if the Freedom caucus gets everything at once in these appropriations bills, which again will not become law, they're just kind of messaging documents. Democrats then have the ability to, you know, pick through this entire budget that Republicans just approved and find things that are unpopular in it, and hammer away at these vulnerable Republicans in these swing districts. And so, for for those Republicans who are who are, are facing serious re-elections, they're like, "Why are you making us do this? Like, why are you making us take a difficult vote uh, on, you know?" T- much, t- let's say, much tougher abortion restrictions, or or wh- whatever it is that's not that's going to hurt us back in our district, and that isn't actually going to become law, and that's just going to like be a step towards a government shutdown. Like what, like what is the political upside for me here? And it makes them furious that they have to deal with this. And, and you're going to start to see, you know, people like Gonzales kind of speaking out as we get closer. to This uh, again, you know, firing back at the Freedom Caucus and the Freedom Caucus firing back at them. You know, calling them rhinos or whatever, whatever drama we're going to see unfold. But that—that's that I think is a, a scenario that Schumer's you know happy to see uh, uh, unfold. And all the while, he'll be saying, "Look, here we are. We're ready to do a CR. We don't want we don't want a government shutdown. Uh, but it's up to you guys."
3: Yeah. No, I agree. I think it's a pretty. Uh early but predictable kind of preview of the messaging strategy, which is very similar to what we've seen from both sides going back to like 2014, uh, maybe even earlier than that let's move on to Ecuador very serious tragic news out of Ecuador in roughly a month uh, there have been three political assassinations we, we've talked a little bit about uh, the assassination of a major presidential candidate last week but again another political leader was assassinated in Ecuador on Monday that would be Pedro Briones. Um they have, you know the, the they have presidential elections happening this Sunday. So a special presidential election is happening this Sunday. Pedro Briones uh, is a member of the the party of the front run, the uh, of former president Rafael Correa. um so, and the front runner in this special presidential election is Luisa Gonzalez uh, from the same party. So that's uh, violence across the spectrum in Ecuador. Uh, and And one thing I want to mention, before we get into that, a lot of times when you see, you know, the, the uh, former prime minister of Japan was assassinated tragically last summer, Shinzo Abe, uh, a lot of times when we talk about political assassi- assassinations, it's not connected to wider trends of violence throughout the country. In Ecuador, it absolutely is. So this is from the Associated Press. The country's national police tallied 3,568 violent deaths in the first six months of this year, far more than the 2,042 reported during the same period in 20. 20- 2022 is a huge increase. That year ended with 4,600 violent deaths, which was the country's highest in history and double the total in 2021. Ryan, one other thing I want to mention is that a lot of, especially people, uh, my fellow conservatives in the United States, Ecuadorians are, are rushing the southern border uh, at mm-hmm. the U.S. in like huge numbers, ostensibly record numbers, uh, flooding upwards for some good reasons. And a lot of the messaging you hear from conservatives often is, well, you know, fix your own country first, then come up here. Our country is directly tied to the violence happening in Ecuador right now that is pushing people up to our border, and that's because uh, a lot of the uh, violence, the political violence in Ecuador is connected to Sinaloa, is connected to Jalisco, and these cartels are ballooning as a result of U.S. policy. Whether it's U.S. drug policy, whether it's U.S. border policy, our policies are uh, responsible in a big part for the explosion in Jalisco and Sinaloa, which are now destabilizing countries like Ecuador, which borders Colombia. Vice reports some 45% of Colombian cocaine is going through Ecuador now. Uh, That has, Ecuador has been, and this is, there's a great vice report in April that I mentioned, it has been a, obviously it borders Colombia. So cocaine has gone through Ecuador for a long time, uh, but they say if it was once a highway, it's now a super highway. Uh, That's the quote from the vice report that I thought put it really well. What do you make of this Ryan?
4: I, you know, I, I think uh, you're saying it well. We the we don't know exactly who was involved yet uh, with all of these assassinations, but it does appear that they're kind of narco-trafficker related. That there's some type of kind of cartel situation. The presidential candidate was, you know, very much known as one of these kind of anti-corruption fighters. You know, who's going to who's going to you know go after the the cartels. Uh, he was he was assassinated, even though he had a you know, in public after a rally in Quito, even though he had a security detail kind of all completely surrounding him, they they assassinated him anyway. Um, And so you're right that the the, the size of these cartels uh, and their uh, access to weapons and their ability to kind of dominate violence is producing a lot of this violence and instability that is then making, you know, economic development impossible and then is producing these massive kind of outflows of migration. It's not as if, uh, the Ecuadorians desperately want to live in the United States. Like they, you know, the vast majority of them would prefer to live in Ecuador. Uh, but the, the narco situation is making it kind of untenable uh, for so many of them. And, you know, our our war on drugs, it, like you said, is the is the driving cause of that. And to, and to put this in context, we can put the next uh, next element up. In a couple of days, I believe it's on the 20th, uh, there will be, uh, a presidential election in Guatemala as well. This this one's this one's wild, and not just because the left lefty candidate is named Bernie uh, it's, uh, <laughs> Bernardo Alfaro, uh, who is actually the grandson of the uh, the first uh, Guatemala's first democratically democratically elected president uh, from the '40s. Uh, he was not even invited to participate in the presidential debates because he was considered kind of such an also ran uh, candidate. Uh, yet he. Finished second in the in the run uh, in the first round of voting, which puts him into the runoff against a, a right wing kind of former uh, first lady, who's who's publicly saying that if she's elected, she's doing a Bukele style El Salvador crackdown. Uh, she said, you know, her quote was something like, you know, human rights are for victims, not for uh, you know, not for people that are victimizing them, and so she's she's really you know really threatening this massive crackdown. Bernie, though. Is if the polls are to be believed, up two to one against him. And this is so. This is a kind of social democrat, left left wing, kind of anti anti corruption uh, populist candidate who's dominating the kind of tough on crime. I'm going to be a bukele style uh, fight. Now he's of course saying he's also going to be tough on crime. But interestingly, he's not saying I'm going after the little guys. He's saying. I'm going to break up the pharmaceutical companies. I'm going to break up the monopolies that control the uh, telecommunications. I'm going to I'm going to uh, make sure that the uh, prisons are, become uh, at, you know places that are actually safe once again because that's a that's a problem in Ecuador uh, as well as Guatemala, Guatemala that the criminal justice system can't really function because even if you're able to arrest, uh, prosecute, and imprison uh, gang leaders. Once you put them in prison, the gangs completely run the prison, and they become just kind of recreation areas that are just controlled by those cartels or, or, or by the gangs,
3: which and, is a huge problem in Ecuador.
4: Right, exactly. You have all, of the, you know, and so then you have riots, and and you have the trafficking operations just continue to function you know, just out of the prison. So, if you know that's you know it, that's not a that's not a way to run any type of civil society. You're, you're just at that point. You've basically ceded, you know, government power over to private actors. Uh, and so, you know, he's saying that he's going to crack down in, in in that sense. But but he's not going to do a bukele style thing where he just pretends that human rights uh, don't exist anymore. And you have not, You know, they they tried the the pr- prosecutors tried to throw him off the ballot, and it had to go all the way to Guatemala's uh, high court to say no, no, no. The guys the guys in the runoff like you you have to let him in. Uh, You haven't heard much at all from the United States on on this question of Guatemala. They vaguely said, you know, we support, you know, there ought to be democracy and everybody should follow the rules. Uh, But, you know, if if Democrats, Republicans, the United States are serious about root causes, that's the thing they love to talk about, root causes, uh, then, you know, a a guy who has, you know, a a mandate from the people on a social democratic platform saying that he's going to redevelop... Uh, you know the economy of of Guatemala and take on uh, the private gangsters. You know ought to have the support of all good people who who are making these kind of root cause arguments if they actually mean them. But that also means allowing Guatemala to have some sovereignty rather than you know uh, having it continue to be a vassal state of of the United States. So uh, both of these elections are going to be interesting. Um, but to your point, th- every you know, as these countries continue to be unstable, the situation at the border is gonna to continue to be a crisis for whatever administration is in power, no matter what we do at that border.
3: Yeah, this is what drives me crazy. like, I understand tackling the root root causes. I think that's probably the most important thing to do and drug policy plays a role in that but so too does our border policy. And that's because, uh, you know, you and I disagree on this, Ryan, and that's fine, but what the establishment Democratic Party does and the establishment Republican Party does is keep things sort of muddled to virtue signal and import cheap labor that they benefit from. And so, you know, you go in one direction or the other. I think there's a, a, obviously, as a conservative, I think there's a pretty strong argument that, you know, we need a clear asylum policy that is not being, you know, over uh, overwhelmed by what they're doing with cbp1 at the border um, and what they're doing with uh, you know just basically kicking trial dates a couple of years down the road letting people in and then disappearing into sanctuary cities uh, at the same time even from the left perspective if it was just let's basically open up the border that does starve cartels of their ability to smuggle human beings um, and you would need cooperation from Mexico and other places uh, but basically what i'm saying is that you can go in either direction you can have a a much more open border or a much more closed border. But what we have right now is an establishment that wants to you know, say they have both, depending on what their audience is. And it has completely destabilized not just uh, our country, but it is having a, a massive effect on these countries that are just south of us, uh, smaller, already less stable for a lot of different reasons, some of which directly go back to us as well. And so our border policy, it's not just our drug policy, it's also our border policy, whether you go in one direction or the other, is, is having an, an utterly destabilizing effect on these countries. And in the same way that the Biden administration held, uh, tried to hold Haiti hostage, Haitian democracy, as they like to talk about, hostage to their border policy, which we saw and we've, we've covered here, uh, th- This, these policies are allowing cartels to grow into multi-billion dollar, multinational corporations, essentially, that have also government power and that they've been ceded like land and territory. Um, and and that, is, that, that is not just going to affect Central America, South America. It's going to start affecting the entire world. It's already having acute effects, obviously, in, in these regions, but it, it's spiraling in a, a really bad direction in ways that uh, we don't seem prepared at all to deal with.
4: And I think you're not gonna solve any of these problems unless you do something about uh, the co-c- cocaine trade. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is you would really need some type of uh, NAFTA and SAFTA, bring together South America, Central America, North America, and come up with a way to just straight up legalize and regulate the cocaine trade. Like we have tried this war on drugs where we're you know just funneling money through these different corrupt uh, systems and it doesn't do anything uh, about the the flow of cocaine and it just props up uh these these vicious cartels you're still even if you did that you'd still have problems with the cartels you'd have human trafficking uh you'd you'd have whatever bitcoin you know they're they're, they're going to find you know ways to like operate criminally but if you take out some of the biggest revenue drivers for them you know then what they end up doing is 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 marginal rather than completely dominating uh in entire economies and I don't know exactly what that right regulatory regime would look like but if we don't do something like that we're we're just going to have you know endless uh cycles of violence and also you know from a cocaine user perspective at this point you you get you're getting a lot, you know a lot of fentanyl getting mixed in mm-hmm. uh with with different drug products and people people dying who are, you know, out out at a club, thinking thinking they're doing a little bump of cocaine, instead it's you know laced with fentanyl, and they're and they're overdosing and dying. Like that's you know that that's not uh, an end result that anybody wants either. So it's not like anybody is really talking seriously about that. But I, but if we actually want to deal seriously with the issue, I think that's that's really uh, has to be part of the solution.
3: All right, well, revelations from Michael Orr of Blindside and then NFL fame have really rocked the country. Uh, They're they're pretty brutal towards the family that famously, uh, as was documented in the Blindside, played by Sandra Bullock and Tim McGraw, uh, took him in. Uh, Allegations, actually, though, that the conservatorship, uh, which was, uh, rather than an adoption, so there's some questions here about whether the conservatorship that Michael Orr was kind of pushed into, allegedly, by the family, uh, as opposed to an adoption, was a, in and of itself, a questionable move. He always thought that he was adopted. It turns out, according to allegations, he has made in a new lawsuit. That may not be the case. Let's actually start with this. uh, You can put the tear sheet up on the screen. This is in New York Times coverage. Uh, He he says that, and this is the headline of the New York Times, that he was, quote, conned with a promise of adoption. It now appears that it was a conservatorship and he's making allegations that the family set up this conservatorship basically to profit off of him in ways that he would not profit himself. That's the allegation um, that Michael Orr has made. Extremely sad, obviously, situation as the family relationship is devolving in public view. Let's actually play though this clip of Michael Orr talking about the situation himself. This is E2.
0: You just said you you feel like you've been mislabeled sometimes, misunderstood. And I think, at least from what I've read, read in the book, a lot of that stems from how you were portrayed in the movie The Blind Side. And that people might have the wrong idea of your personality, number one. That you were this kind of shy wallflower, <laughs> that you were
4: timid, and you had to be kind of like drawn out of your shell, when in reality, you were a workaholic, you were hyper-organized, and you were like, damn it, I'm making
1: something of myself <laughs> no matter what it takes after a rough background. Is that is that the, the big one that you feel you were mislabeled as? I think it took away the hard work and the dedication that I created uh, from a child and going to school in the third grade, getting myself up, first one in the locker room, last one out, uh, and I think the biggest for me is, you know, being portrayed, uh, not being able to read or write. Uh, second grade, I was doing plays and for the, in front of the school. And I, I think that's one of the, when you go into a locker room and your teammates don't think that, you can learn a playbook, you know, that weighs heavy.
3: I can imagine absolutely does. And he says that extends to all of his opportunities professionally. Basically, if you're known from the blind side, and uh, in, in the blind side purports to be, uh, and, and maybe the blind side actually had some legal language uh, that it was like roughly based on a true story. But either way, if, if that's what rockets you to uh, fame, obviously he was very talented in his own right. But that was uh, that movie is an Oscar-winning film, uh, was beloved, controversial, but beloved loved by a lot of the country. Uh, You can imagine how that would affect everything. And the reason this is coming to light now, Michael Orr said he was focused on football basically until about 2016, and wasn't focused on the details. Uh, and, And after he sort of shifted his focus from football, he was able to dive into the details and start unraveling some of what he thought was an adoption and seeing where some of the money went. So he filed a petition to end the conservatorship on Monday. Uh, and Orr learned that the conservatorship uh, didn't have the power, as NBC says, to make him a legal member of their famu- family back in February. So this is uh, all happening now because he's just starting to, in, in his type of, in, in his reasoning, kind of put the pieces together. This is from the petition. It says the lie of Michael's adoption is one upon which co-conservators Leanne Toey and Sean Toey, i would never learned how to pronounce that name—have enriched themselves at the expense of their ward, the undersigned Michael Orr. I think it's Towie. Um, Ryan, this is a, like obviously very very sad situation. The Tuohy family um, denies the allegations. They say you know, we love Michael at sixteen or seventeen. We'll love him at thirty seven. We'll love him at sixty seven. Uh, both the son and the parents have said that. Uh, there was an excerpt from the mom's memoir uh, that came out, you know, talking about if there's a if, a if there's a misconception about Michael, it's that he's actually very smart. So I don't know how deliberate. Uh, any of this was on, on their part, that will be litigated in court. I genuinely don't know. It could have been really malicious. It could not have been. What's your sense of this, Ryan, as somebody who uh, you said when well, we took a break earlier, not a fan of the film?
4: <laughs> oh, the film, just brutal to me. Uh, the, the the white savior stuff, just w- without, not like, not even any attempts to kind of cut it for public consumption. Just straight, you know, white savior dope just injected right into the veins of the American public. That part of it, uh, to me, was just, like, just too much. Like, it, it felt like this is this is impossible. Like, the, there has to be a little bit more agency on the part of, of Orr. And you hear Orr there saying, like, look, when I was in third grade, I was getting myself up, getting to school. Uh, you know, a workaholic, he, he later in that interview says, I was already an all-American kind of before I moved in. Uh, to to their home. And so the one thing the New York Times uh, reported is that there's some discrepancy over the question of how much money uh, yeah. the, the kids got. Uh, the, uh, the parents are saying the kids got very little, the, the kids saying they got a little bit more than that. Uh, but broad, broadly speaking, there was a deal that was struck, the film deal, where the, the blood children uh, did get cut in on the revenues of the movie and and Orr did not. Or who was the you know putative star of the film, did not get cut in while the while the, while his you know quote unquote siblings did. And I think everybody across the spectrum could agree that that's weird. Now mm-hmm. the, the dad says that the conservatorship was set up in a way that would enable him to go to college, and there are some rules about income and college, et cetera. But you know the movie didn't come out until you know he's already in the NFL, uh, so that that wouldn't have. You know that wouldn't have implicated that question. Uh, so some of this does need to be litigated, but some of it also does seem clear. Like he should have been cut in on the movie. Like I think we and 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 the and the book, if if there was any kind of book, they're probably not book proceeds. I'm not sure, uh, but film proceeds absolutely. If the kid, if if the kids that he's living with are getting cut in because of his story, like it's it's not a it's not a movie because of them. As you know, I'm sure they're, they're fine kids or whatever but you know that's not that's not who they who we all flock to the theaters to see it was his story so he should have been cut in on that uh, and uh but it, you know he also has a book coming out um so this is you know and this is a, this is uh a, this this is drawing attention to that and uh i i'm actually looking forward to reading his book cuz he's, he's you know he he's led a fascinating life and not not just a offensive lineman like a pro bowl or won a super bowl with the ravens like one of, you know one of the best Offensive lineman in the league while he was playing and had had a very long and successful career.
3: Yeah, and like many people in the NFL, came from a genuinely difficult background, and it is it, it is true. Watching the movie. Um, the, the kind of, as you say, and this was the, the controversy surrounding it for a long time, the white savior narrative is really glaring. And it's definitely a movie from another time. Uh, that it, The, the <laughs> movie would not be made in the same way today. It would not be received in the same way today. There's no question about it. Um, and, and sort of diving down into the particulars legally, I mean, I think it's really sad that that has to play out publicly. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if, you know, this was malicious, um, and to your point, it is really weird. I actually think the conservatorship is extremely weird uh, to begin with he was 17 years old I think when this deal was struck and uh, rather than adopting a 17 year old I can understand the legal argument for going with a conservatorship a lot of people are familiar with conservatorships because of what happened with Britney Spears uh, what played out with Britney Spears over the last 10 plus years but it does seem odd that they had a conservatorship over Michael Orr and continue to Uh, he is now filing a petition to end the conservatorship that the, the whole thing I mean that in and of itself I find very strange and it seems Seems like it's possible the conservatorship you know, maybe there were, there were legal justifications. Their attorney, who I believe is a family friend, told them at the time, you know, you've got to do this for college reasons, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe that's the case. Um, Or maybe there were other uh, motivations involved and there were reasons why they didn't want to formally adopt him into their family. Uh, But to your point, there are some things that are just on the surface weird. And, uh, you know, at least from the sort of court of public opinion, I do feel like the ball is now in the Tui's court to prove uh, that they had, you know, no ill intentions because these two things in and of themselves like you said with the, the movie deal um, that stuff is uh, just patently bizarre on its face. And the, the the sort of shift culturally, I think puts them in their legacy, like actually in uh, in big trouble going forward. I think the mom is doing motivational speeches. Leanne, I think is her name. She does motivational speeches. I think they are still profiting off of the blindside narrative in some pretty big ways. Uh, and if they're doing that, and uh, there's, there's way more to the story than we realize, then they deserve justice. They deserve to be held accountable for for what they did. So, in in some sense, it's sad this is playing out publicly because it does seem like there was a lot of love between these folks. But uh, on the other on the other hand, if the public's being taken for a ride, good. Let's let's have it play out publicly yeah. so there can be some justice served.
4: Yeah, and I want to see compare Orr's book uh, to Michael Lewis's book, which I read yeah. back in when it came out, 2005 or 2006, and I'm curious if it was, you know, heavily sourced just to the Tui's or if he had, you know, if he accurately got Orr's perspective in there. You know, Lewis is the best, you know, nonfiction kind of storyteller that we've had over the last you know, 30 years or so. He just, you know, pumps out classic after classic. Uh, so I will be interested to see, you know, how how well it holds up and whether or not he just kind of embedded himself with uh, with the parents rather, or. "Quote unquote," parents uh, rather than or so we'll see. Uh, that's that's something that um, th- that I don't know yet, but I'll but I'll be curious about. I'm also curious to read his uh, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried book. <laughs> you know, he's he's got that one coming out, so I guess he's he's uh, got his hands full. Although his subject is now uh, indisposed, having uh, gone back to jail, so maybe you can focus on just writing it at this point.
3: Yeah, no, I mean I think this actually could legitimately reflect in ways that are. Uh, then, maybe not so beneficial for for Michael Lewis. Um, going forward, people may reevaluate his work depending on how or story compares with Michael Lewis story and how well Michael Lewis is able to defend his work. I don't know. Uh, but if that's the case, this is not great. And it's, it's not, you, you can really see from Orr's perspective, how of course this would follow him throughout his career. The way he was depicted in the movie um, is he, he was, he was treated as an idiot basically in the movie. Um, yeah. And so you can understand how frustrating it would have been from his perspective to have that follow him throughout his career. Um, that, that is just his, his frustrations are very easy to empathize with.
4: Right, right. That was a poignant moment to hear. him so Say you're looking around a room and you're, you're wondering if uh, your teammates think that you don't know how to, you know, learn a playbook, uh, right. which is off, awfully important for an offensive lineman. Everything falls apart.
3: And it's not but like he needed to know movement. what he's doing. It's not like he needed the movie to be successful. This is the point that you made earlier. It's not like, well, you know, it's just the price you pay for making it. No, I mean, like, of course it made him more famous than he otherwise would have been, but his success in football is not due to the book and the movie. Uh, He he stands on his own merits. So it's, yeah, the frustrations are very, very easy to empathize with.
4: So I see, and I'm excited. uh, From at the bar here, it says we got some Hillary (laughs) content coming up. What's what's your point today?
3: Yes, can't stop, won't stop. Uh, I want to start by playing some clips of Hillary Clinton on Rachel Maddow's show. Just as luck would have it, she was on Maddow's show to discuss an Atlantic op-ed she wrote recently called The Weaponization of Loneliness on Monday night as the indictment, Fannie Willis's indictment against Donald Trump was dropped. That was late at night, actually. It started coming out like 8, 9 PM, something like that. Um, But let's start with this first clip. It's a a little bit shorter, but it's just, you can see Hillary and uh, Rachel Maddow having a little bit of a good time uh, as the indictment announced. Fancy meeting you here. Oh, I can't believe this.
2: (laughs) Yeah, this is not the circumstances in which I expected to be talking to you. Nor me, Rachel. It's always good to talk to you, but honestly, um, I didn't think that it would be under these circumstances. Yet another set of indictments.
3: Kaylee McEnany on Fox News reacted to that clip just by being like, what are you, you know, you're laughing at this. Uh, it's not good for the country. And obviously Kaylee Kaylee McEnany is, was attached to the Trump administration. So it's especially not funny if you're Kaylee McEnany, but at the same time, uh, she does have a point about how funny all of this is and whether or not it's a good look for Hillary Clinton, somebody who actually avoided, uh, an indictment because James Comey said, you know, no reasonable prosecutor would bring this case against her, which was very debatable at the time. Um, She's somebody who who sort of skirted that and lost to Donald Trump, then you know perpetrated this fiction of Russian collusion uh, in ways that were not tethered to a, a small but real problem of Russian interference in the twenty sixteen election. Uh, ha ha! This is so funny. Uh, let me laugh in this nice MSNBC studio. It might not be the best look, but uh, that aside, let's dive into the substance here and uh, let's let's watch more of the conversation between Maddow and Clinton from Monday night. If
2: bad actors tell us falsely that every election is stolen and that the only way an election is uh, trustworthy is if they t- come out on top of it, um, then something it's it it's t- tells you something not just about that person or that moment. It maybe wounds us as a democracy and in a way that is hard to repair. Mm-hmm. What do you think about how we get better? Um, after the wounds that have been inflicted on us through this process? Well, I think, you know, the truth matters. Um, I think having these cases be brought and be brought in such professional manners, we'll see how they unfold. Obviously, uh, the trials, um, if there are trials, are going to be critically important. But the article you mentioned that I published about the weaponization of loneliness really does, in my view, point to the larger cultural concerns because the lack of trust, the divisiveness, the undermining of faith in ourselves, in each other, uh, respect for our institutions, uh, the rule of law, all of that has been deliberately inculcated within our body politic. You know, there were trends before. I mean, we have seen how people have become more isolated, less community-oriented, less civically-minded. Then we see how social media and technology has certainly accelerated a lot of those trends.
3: Okay, so Hillary Clinton is low-hanging fruit. I get that. I think it's still relevant to break down a lot of what she said there because she's representative of a class of elites who is now basically just unhappy with the world that they created. That's the big takeaway, I think, from everything Hillary Clinton just said there. Um, And, you know, she said, Rachel Maddow said, you know, the only way, if if we're in a situation where the only way people can feel comfortable with the elections, you know, an election is stolen if they lose it. Um, The fact that Rachel Maddow said that to Hillary Clinton earnestly, um, in a way that wasn't pointing the finger at Hillary Clinton, I think is remarkable. There's a huge difference between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in that Hillary Clinton did concede that she lost the election to Donald Trump the next day. She spent years after that casting doubt though on the outcome of the election, saying that Russia stole the election, her campaign was a huge part of planting the seeds of doubt about Trump's legitimacy as president of the United States and she continued to perpetuate the fiction of this this grand, vast conspiracy, to borrow a phrase, about Donald Trump being an asset of Vladimir Putin in some very specific and very false ways. So just to start, Hillary Clinton, again, we see her being somebody that is creating a world. She doesn't want to take accountability for having created. She creates this world that she's then unhappy with. I don't think she recognizes how de- detrimental, I shouldn't say I don't think, I know she doesn't recognize, she never could recognize how detrimental the uh, crisis of confidence in inst- institutions, how much her fiction, the fiction that she was, uh, in a large part responsible for about Russia collusion, how much that played into the loss of trust in institutions. By the way, it's always worth mentioning that even the birther conspiracy, which was famously perpetuated by Donald Trump, came from the Clinton campaign all the way back in 2008. I believe that was a Sidney Blumenthal special, but nevertheless, Hillary Clinton has been sowing the seeds of doubt, of distrust in our institutions for a very long time. And again, this is where the elites who are passing down uh, the United States of 2023 to their children and their grandchildren look around and are suddenly really unhappy with the world that they've created. Although, of course, they're unwilling to take accountability for having created it. They'll take accountability for creating other things, but they won't take accountability for creating this world that they're deeply unhappy with now. I actually wanna say, I'm glad that Hillary Clinton's op-ed, The Weaponization of Loneliness, that she echoed a little bit from in this Maddow interview, Genuinely, I'm glad that she's pointing some figures at Civic Breakdown and at technology, at loneliness, at isolation, I am genuinely very glad to hear that because I think there are a whole lot of people who sit in those MSNBC studios, uh, cable news studios, and and don't recognize exactly how much that's crept into the everyday lives of your average American. And so, uh, you know, half of the battle is admitting you have a problem. So, I, like, in in all seriousness, I think it's fantastic that somebody like Hillary Clinton has come to the realization that there are serious. Tra- you know, when when this was being written about by Robert Putnam in 1980, where was Hillary Clinton uh, when Bowling Alone came out? When What's the Matter with Kansas came out? Uh, when Coming Apart came out, all of these you know, essential pieces of scholarship that were creating, that were showing very real problems existed. What happened from the Clinton administration in the 90s? Well, we saw a lot of policy decisions that exacerbated the problems of civic breakdown in certain pockets of the country, of loneliness in certain pockets of the country. Let's just name two, NAFTA and WTO, great for some parts of the country, very, very destabilizing for other parts of the country. Let's look at all of the tech mergers um, that happened during the Obama administration that Hillary Clinton was a part of. Let's talk about Section 230, which was passed by none other than Bill Clinton himself, passed into law by none other than Bill Clinton himself, that allowed tech companies. Uh, and you know, there was a piece of legislation at the time that we didn't really know where the internet was going. So it's it's somewhat understandable uh, in the same way that you can look back and say, I get why there was so much excitement among elites for NAFTA and WTO. I understand. uh, But the practical consequences have been uh, way more serious and way more destabilizing than anybody um, from that sort of political establishment recognized that would be. And yet they still, they don't want to take accountability for it. And they still blame everybody else. That's what Hillary Clinton is doing here, pointing her fingers at everybody else, instead of looking around and saying, oh, maybe the regime that I led and championed for so long had something to do with this. This. It's also remarkable to hear her talk about the rule of law, which, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, she, she really just said there, rule of law. We've talked on the show over the last couple of weeks. I mean, I think pretty much everybody here at Breaking Points would be super happy if they locked up every politician who did something bad. That's not what happens. So to hear Hillary Clinton, uh, a supporter of, of Joe Biden, um, who is overseeing or who is the father of Hunter Biden, I should say, there are very serious implications about lack of lu- rule of law when it comes to Hunter Biden very serious implications about lack of rule of law when it comes to Hillary Clinton herself, when it comes to Bill Clinton. Uh, So to hear her sort of wax sanctimonious about rule of law is another example that, again, she's looking around and saying, you know, rule of law, Donald Trump felt so comfortable flouting rule of law in all of these different cases, and Republicans um, are now so comfortable with Donald Trump flouting the rule of law in all of these different cases. That is, that is so disturbing. You know, it is, but the only. The only reason people are doing that is because rule of law, um, it's it's sort of a fight fire with fire. That's a lot of things. And and I'm not saying that's right. A lot of people um, on the conservative side think that's right now. I don't really agree with that over uh, so in, in particular cases, but to see her just being like, oh my gosh, the mis- the mysterious rule of law, the, the breakdown in rule of law, uh, it's just really, really too cute by half to hear that specifically from Hillary Clinton. Uh, and it's also remarkable to hear her talk about public trust for all of the reasons that we've already mentioned. So again, especially from Rachel Maddow, the journalist in this situation, to be tossing a question to Hillary Clinton about how disturbing it is that people think, you know, it's it's only, it's it's just it, an election is not stolen if I win, but if I lose, then it is stolen. To hear that particularly tossed to Hillary Clinton, uh, to hear that from a network that has platformed Stacey Abrams however many times without ever asking her the question, like, hey, maybe do you think walking around saying that you're the legitimate governor of Georgia might be sowing some seeds of distrust in ways that are very unhealthy. It's just, again, it's the world they created that they are unhappy with. So that's one, and two is that they're just unwilling to admit that it's the world that they created. They're, they're unwilling to even see, recognize, understand that it's the world they created. And it's not just from the sort of abstract questions about how Hillary Clinton talked about Russia in the media. It also goes down to policy decisions that she supported. Guess who was a major donor to the Clinton Foundation? The Sackler family. Um, some of this stuff, tech, a, a donor to Hillary Clinton. Uh, some of this stuff is, is concrete policy decisions that she supported. NAFTA, WTO, um, 230, uh, tech mergers under Obama. I get that she wasn't in. Uh, control of tech mergers. But what was she talking about uh, when it came to all of these different decisions? Uh, Where did she disagree? I mean, this is a woman who campaigned for president in 2007, 2008, campaigned for president in 2015 and 2016, uh, and was on the wrong side of a lot of these issues. So in addition to just sort of the the bigger questions about how Hillary Clinton has discussed these issues in public in ways that are severely detrimental to public trust, uh, the issues where she has been untruthful, where she has outright lied, Um, over and over again, that has contributed to a lack of public trust. The ways in which she has been treated by uh, let's say when it comes to cases of the rule of law her husband has been treated uh, the administration the Obama administration she served under has been treated these are all really serious and they are all they have all contributed over time to places in the country that are super supportive of Donald Trump um, maybe because they were they bore the brunt of WTO and NAFTA um, in ways that other parts of the country didn't you know Hillary Clinton famously and on stage in India bragged about how she won Uh, in 2016, states with the highest GDP, as though all those places that are unproductive, that is just, who who would want to win those states anyway? Who would want to be popular in those states anyway? That's for people like Donald Trump. Uh, So it it just comes back to this, like, lack of um, accountability, Ryan. And, And I find that really grating. All right, Ryan, I think you have an update for us on your fantastic reporting in Pakistan about the Imran Khan situation continuing to unfold over there. Tell us more.
4: You know, three different interesting uh, updates here. One, we'll talk about the State Department response. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, the response in in Pakistan. Uh, But uh, more immediately, we have breaking news just out of Pakistan right now. The Pakistani government has charged Imran Khan, the former prime minister, with losing a, a, a top secret Pakistani cable. He had previously said that he had lost this this cable that uh, that proved a connection between uh, United States pressure uh, and his ouster. They've now filed charges against him with the strong implication being that Imran Khan was the sort was our source. Uh, you know that he lost the document now uh, we have it. Now the problem with that logic is is manyfold, and we can go through it here. one. Uh, my colleague Murtaza Hussain, nor myself, traveled to Pakistan. Like we did not go to Pakistan, so we did not get a physical copy. We obviously got a a digital copy. So the question of whether or not he lost it uh, is is absurd. It inconsistent, makes no sense. You know, he, So we also were very clear uh, in the story uh, that our source was inside. Uh, the Pakistani military. The source was not Imran Khan. It was not anybody in his circle. It was not any civilian functionary. We were we were very clear about that. And the and the fact that he lost the document doesn't have any connection to whether or not somebody else uh, could digitally digitally leak a copy. What's interesting though uh, is that there was a kind of a a three step move that the that the State Department and also the kind of Pakistani elite were doing about this cable. So first they would say, uh, it's inauthentic. This is, you know, we, how do we even know that this is this is real? Then they would say, this must have come from Imran Khan, and it's high treason. And then they would say, this is a nothing burger. And if you think about it, like all three of those things can't be true together. Two of the three can't be together. One of the three can't be true together. It's either, it, you know, it, it either is uh, authentic, uh, and it, it is either a treasonous act or it's a nothing burger. Like it can't be all of those three different things. Finally, it seems like they're moving away from questioning the authenticity of it. And we can put up this first element here. The outgoing uh, Pakistani Prime Minister Shabaz Sharif, who has had access to the document, so would know, you know, what it says, uh, said this in an interview uh, with the Guardian. It said uh, Khan said he had the cipher, uh, but he had lost it. Now it has been published. On a website, and so that is confirmation that the document uh, is authentic. Now, uh, within about an hour or two after uh, our show posted uh, last week, breaking the news of, of this cable, uh, and and it simultaneously published at, at the Intercept, there was a State Department briefing. I want to play a couple of clips uh, from from that briefing to show kind of how they responded. People asked why why wasn't it in the show. Uh, why did it come out just a little bit after? Because we were giving the State Department time to respond. What Matt Miller says from the podium here is very similar to what he said in the written uh, statement that we included in the article, but it's interesting to, to watch him say it. So here's uh, the State Department getting pressed on that cable last week.
1: The cipher cable supposedly that's been uh, that's that's been uh, uh, reported um just I know that you have, you you've had some on record comments on this, but I wanted to ask you about the veracity of, of the the comments it's obviously a Pakistani document does the United States uh generally think that what was reported there what was that? <clears throat>
0: so a few things one um, Yes, it's a, it's a report reported to be a Pakistani document. I can't speak to whether it is an actual Pakistani document or not, I just simply don't know. Um, with respect to um, uh, the comments that were reported, I'm not going to speak to private diplomatic exchanges, other than to say that even if those comments were accurate as reported, um, they in no way show the United States taking a position on who the leader of Pakistan ought to be. If you remember the comments
4: that the State Department made privately to the Pakistani ambassador, they said if the no confidence vote against Imran Khan succeeds, all will be forgiven. And they all will be forgiven was the, the way that uh, the United States was upset uh, that he had visited uh, that he had visited Russia on the day of the invasion, that he had taken what they called a quote aggressively neutral stance on the Russia-Ukraine Ukraine war. So somehow the State Department is insisting here uh, that by saying that if you take a particular action, which is throw the prime minister out through a no confidence vote, all will be forgiven, that that is somehow not stating a preference about what will happen. I suppose you could argue that, hey, they're just stating uh, they're just stating facts here, like the same way that, let's say, uh, an armed robber might approach somebody and say, "You know, if you don't give me your wallet, I will pull the trigger." Now, I don't have a preference over whether or not uh, one thing or the other happens, but I'm just I'm just telling you, you know, what the situation is. If and then, if he turns over his wallet, you say, "Well, look, that was an independent decision that that person made uh, to hand his wallet over." Uh, the, the, the press corps uh, did not completely accept that answer, pushed back a little bit. Here's here's uh, the next moment from that uh, interview.
0: We expressed concern uh, privately to the government of Pakistan, as we expressed concern publicly about the visit of then Prime Minister Khan to Moscow on the very day of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, uh, we made um, uh, that concern quite clear, but as the former Pakistani ambassador to the United States himself has stated, the allegations that the United States has interfered in internal decisions about the leadership of Pakistan are false. As we've stated, they're false. They've always been false and they remain false.
4: Okay, so now Miller here is making a very specific claim and he made the claim to us in a comment also, but we did we did not include it because we thought it was too much of a uh, a false claim to just allow it to be said publicly. But since he's saying it from, from the podium, uh, let's address it here. He's saying, uh, that the ambassador himself has said that there was actually no interference. In fact, in the document, in his own assessment, he says that Don spoke out of turn here and that the Pakistan ought to complain officially to the United States about the behavior. What I think is going on, and I asked for a clarification from the State Department on this a week ago, and I, I re-upped that request today. I think they have the wrong Khan here. So we put up this next element, a man named Azam Khan, who was the principal secretary to Imran Khan was arrested and held for 30 days in detention by the Pakistani government. After that 30 days of detention, he put out a statement saying that Khan, uh, you know, really trumped up the allegations that were in this cable and that actually they don't show that there's any U.S. conspiracy. That is consistent what, with what Miller is saying. He's the principal secretary. That, that is a different official. Assad Majid Khan was the ambassador, not Azam Khan. So. I have asked the State Department, did you confuse your cons here? I understand there's we're now talking three, three different cons, uh, but if you're going to make a claim that definitive that the ambassador has said that there was no interference, you gotta make sure that you have the right con here. So I'll report back if I hear any of this, but there is no, no public record that we can find of uh, Assad Khan going back on his initial assessment that is included in the cable that we published and then you have a follow up from the uh, AP reporter, uh, who's in, in the gallery here saying, look, okay, you're saying that you're not expressing any preference, but you can imagine why people receiving that message might think that you are. So let's, let's roll the, the full rest of this, this clip.
0: If you take all of the comments in context that were reported in that, in that purported cable, I think what they show is the United States government Expressing concern about the policy choices that the prime minister was taking, uh, it is not in any way the the United States government expressing a preference on who the leadership of Pakistan ought to be. Well,
5: but Matt, just you you, you can go. I, I think what I'm hearing is that essentially the the substance of this report and the purported Pakistani cable back to Islamabad is accurate, but you're saying that it it. it but it is not the U.S. saying that so, Prime Minister Khan, then Prime Minister Khan, has to should leave office. Is that
0: I, is that correct? D- d- close-ish. I cannot speak to the Close veracity. Ish. Close-ish. Then I'll explain what ish. I mean. I'll explain I, I what I mean by a close-ish. A fine, that's a diplomatic term. Of exactly. Box. I'll explain yeah. what I mean by that, which is I cannot speak to the veracity of this document. Okay. What I can't. Let me just finish. What I can not say. Let's even just even if those comments were all. 100% accurate as reported, mm-hmm. which I do not know them to be. Yeah. They do not in any way show um, uh, a representative of the State Department taking a position on who okay. the leadership – They're commenting on – can on,
5: understand, uh, though, perhaps – perhaps you can understand why other countries might think when the U.S. weighs in, even in a way like this, uh, that it is taking a position on it. So, I mean, I can think uh, – a name like five or ten – Leaders who the United States has sought to oust, including some that has it has been successful in ousting, although not only after a military invasions. Um, so, you know, it's not an unprecedented thing, for, or for a country to think that the U.S. is trying to pressure it into, or trying to uh make make its views known about who it thinks should be the leader of a country
0: right i will say that i can understand how those comments number 1 could be taken out of context and number 2 how people might have the might desire for them to be taken out of context and might try to use them to advance an agenda that is not represented okay. by the comments think, of themselves. And do you think that's what's happening here? Uh, I think uh, a number of people have taken them out of context and used them for In, political purposes. For, to, uh, I won't speak to intentions, but I think that's what's happened.
4: Okay. And j- just so viewers understand the comments that he's talking about, specifically Donald Liu, the State Department official, uh, said to the Pakistan ambassador, quote, I think if the no-confidence vote against the prime minister succeeds, All will be forgiven in Washington because the Russia visit is being looked at as a decision by the prime minister. Otherwise, I think it will be tough going ahead. Uh, So Emily, you and I were talking last week before we had gotten the State Department uh, response, and we were, which is why we hadn't posted the the video yet, and we were kind of guessing, like how is is the State Department gonna handle this? Because they clearly are now caught doing the thing that they have said for uh, more than a year that they did not do and it turns out no that they can just continue to say that they didn't uh it's uh, it's hard to be stunned at my age in this field but that to me was a rather stunning set of sentences for a public official to put together
3: good on matt lee by the way the- Ryan, uh, that's the, this reporting has been so important uh, and just amazing to see the State Department dance around it. Uh, I know you'll continue to keep us updated on that, even all the way from Europe as we continue uh, this month and beyond. So that does it for us today. It was a big show uh, because there's just it's we're four indictments in that Axios chart we show, showed earlier in the show. Every time in D.C. political reporters sort of brace themselves, uh, and you know it's bittersweet. It's exciting and it's also uh, going to be a ton of work when you're covering a presidential election cycle. But this time it's a presidential election cycle with four <laughs> indictments <laughs> that will be weaving in and out of each other. So uh, there's a lot, especially when uh, Congress comes back after Labor Day, it is just going to be pedal to the metal. There's so much news to cover. And we'll be back here every Wednesday breaking it all down for you.
4: Never, Never a dull moment.
3: Never a dull moment. Make sure, sure. <laughs> make sure to, to subscribe to watch the full CounterPoint show from beginning to end. Uh, that's available to premium subscribers. Make sure to follow us, uh, subscribe on podcast platforms, subscribe on YouTube. We appreciate it so much. We appreciate you watching us week after week. We're almost at a year of CounterPoints. We'll be excited to celebrate that in September. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We appreciate it so much.
4: See you later.
2: okay. The information age can be overwhelming, especially when the
0: information can't always be trusted. But for the past 180 years, readers around the world have turned to The Economist as their trusted news source, delivering in-depth expert analysis of a
2: wide range of topics. Listeners get a one-month free trial when they sign up at Economist.com. That gives you unlimited digital access to daily articles, special reports, great podcasts, subscriber-only newsletters, and so much more. Take the guesswork out of staying informed. Go to Economist.com to sign up.